Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BV Energy Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Anne Sharon. I lead the management and transformation activity of the BV Energy Unit, and with me here is my colleague, Jenik Mantashian. Hi, Anne. It's so great to be joining you. I want to introduce our guest today. Today, we'll be speaking with Iris Bonet. Iris is a world leader in behavioral science and is the Albert Pratt Professor of Business and Government, serving as the academic dean of Harvard Kennedy School. She is the author of the award-winning book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design, and advises governments and companies on the topic around the world. Professor Bonet is the co-director of the Women in Public Policy Program and the faculty chair of the executive program, Global Leadership and Public Policy for the 21st Century for the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. She was named one of the most influential people in gender policy by Apolitical in 2018 and 2019. Iris, we're especially honored to welcome you today, as you've been an immensely inspiring source of knowledge for us regarding our work in applying behavioral science to promote gender equality within companies, but also within organizations with the UN He for She movement, for example. Reading your amazing book, What Works, was really a wow moment for us at the BV Energy Unit. And your insights are not only inspiring for gender equality and diversity, but also for other key topics like hiring processes, as we'll discuss later. So we're very happy and honored to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Iris. Thank you so much, Anne and Jenik, for this very generous introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Thank you, Iris. So um, we would love to hear a little bit more about your background. Could you tell us a bit of history on how you discovered the field of behavioral economics? So I studied economics uh, at the University of Zurich. I'm Swiss originally and did my PhD there in economics. And uh, one of my core advisors was Bruno Frey, who himself uh, is a behavioral economist and kind of introduced me to the field. So it came quite naturally um, through my studies. Uh, the university then um, uh, was lucky enough to attract Ernst Fair, who is another leader, of course, in the field, to join the faculty um, in Zurich. And so uh, the field really took off in many ways while I was a doctoral student. Uh, certainly uh, in Switzerland, it probably took off a bit earlier in the United States and maybe some other parts of the world. But I think in Switzerland, it was around that time um, that people really started to be interested in behavioral economics and behavioral science more generally. So I attribute it to my advisor um, and other faculty at the university uh, who you know, inspired me in thinking more broadly about the canonical model in economics that assumes rationality and in some cases also selfishness, um, to say that there's another world out there that is more descriptive of how real people really behave, that is likely uh, not as rational 
um, but in fact, boundedly rational. And of course, Herbert Simon taught us that a long, long time ago. Um, and also not as selfish. Uh, so that was quite important actually for me early on to think about the research on intrinsic motivation, for example, by Bruno Frey or fairness by Ernst Fehr. Mm, great. So you, you've mentioned a few individuals who um, really inspired you. Are there other researchers or mentors that played an inf influ influential role in your career? Many, many, <laughs> of course. But uh, so I uh, did my PhD in Zurich in, in, in 97. And then I spent a year as a postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, at Berkeley, I was surrounded by a number of great people, including people like Oliver Williamson, uh, who actually uh, would not have called himself a behavioral economist, but uh, uh, was a great thinker and uh, was very um, helpful and influential um, uh, in, in my life as well. Um, there were others, of course, uh, including that I was lucky enough, this was pure luck, that at the time that I was at Berkeley, um, some of the leading behavioral economists of the time uh, spent their year at the Center for Advanced Study at Stanford. Uh, they included Richard Thaler, Matt Rabin, George Lowenstein, Colin Kammerer, and others. And I then uh, uh, used to go and attend the seminars like once a week and um, just found it inspiring to see how they were thinking and um, learn more about their work. And in fact, as I, as I described the people um, who were important for me in forming my thinking um, early on, uh, I realized that they're all men. And that probably was the state of the field really at the time. Um, uh, th there just weren't, I mean, there weren't many women um, economists. There's still not enough um, women economists today, I'm no question, but there were even fewer at the time when I studied in Zurich. Um, I had one um, instructor, um, in fact, Professor Shelbert, who was a woman, um, so very few female role models, as I think of it now. But thankfully, the field has um, changed in behavioral um, economics in particular, thinking of people like Kathy Eckel and Muriel Niederle, Britt Grosskopf, uh, Lisa Westerlund, Ian Jan, Nava Ashraf, Katie Baldiga, Kaufman is a bit of a more junior faculty member. But so, so, so that's a really, really good thing that we have um, much more diversity in the field now than uh, when I was studying. Mm. And that's actually a great lead in to my next question, which is at what point did you really start to think um, specifically about gender equality and diversity as a focus area for your work? And what really led to your interest in this area? Yeah, it's a very good question. In fact, um, it was more chance, in, almost, I mean, not complete pure luck, of course, but almost more chance than anything else. So I sometimes describe myself as a feminist at heart, um, that I have been forever, I mean, as long as I can think. But in fact, my first, I would say, 10 years of my academic life had not been focused on studying gender or diversity at all. But I had, uh, my research was focused on trust and fairness, as I mentioned before, on cooperation, public goods games, um, ultimatum games, dictator games, those types of um, questions. Um, and then the dean of the Kennedy School at the time, uh, uh, the Professor Elwood, David Elwood, uh, asked me whether I would be interested in directing one of our research centers at the Kennedy School, the Women in Public Policy Program. And in fact, that came a bit of a surprise to me because 
uh, again, as I said, I have always been interested in gender and gender equity and feminist at heart, but I, it, it really hadn't been a huge focus of my research. So I would say like others I had, or maybe more so than others, I had focused more on the gender dimension, for example, in trust. So I wrote a paper, I think a long time ago on why men and women trust. Uh, where I was actually interested in comparing um, different motivations for men and women um, as they're thinking about their trust decisions. But I would describe my work at the time as gender being a variable, um, or maybe even more precisely, sex being a variable as just a binary um, variable, men and women. And then, you know, that question really propelled me into a different world where initially I wasn't even sure I could say yes, but then I did say yes. And then it took me a little bit and I benefited heavily, I should say, from the publication of Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Um, as I benefited from that rethink in our field where we used to uh, use behavioral science to identify the mistakes people are making or the problems that we have in our decision making. Uh, that book moved the field towards thinking about solutions. And that was a bit of an eye opener for me as well, where I was like, okay, I could use the same kinds of insights that I had used before to understand how people make decisions and apply those to improving people's decision making, people's organizations, society's decision making, in particular, focusing on gender um, inclusion and diversity more generally. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's been the story then. So then I took over as director and I've been um, directing and now co-directing the center for, I don't know, 12 years maybe um, now. And with a heavy, heavy focus on using behavioral science to close gender gaps and to advance gender equity. Mm, that's so great to like look back retrospectively and really appreciate those different, those, those little moments and decisions that really, you know, ended, ended up leading you to where you are today. So that's great. Um, we would love to hear more about um, some of the experiments you conducted that you feel were most uh, insightful or perhaps the ones that you're most proud of. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think there are many that I, that I am actually proud of. Um, or put differently, I don't think I regret um, any of the experiments that I have run. Uh, I certainly have run, I'm going to talk a little bit about trust first and then talk about some of the gender work that is more recent. But uh, when working on trust, what uh, really motivated me was to, to better understand why people trust. And then once we knew why people trusted or didn't trust, uh, possibly to test interventions um, to help increase trust. So we ran a number of studies. In fact, before I even go there, I should tell you another funny story. Um, so I, I was always, I've always been interested in um, cross-cultural um, comparisons as well. Um, and, or not even cross-cultural comparisons, just running um, uh, studies outside of the Western maybe hemisphere, I mean, including Europe and the US, where maybe 90% or more um, of research had taken place at the time. And where I think an increasing number of people, including myself, were concerned about the generalizability of those insights. So, so in any case, so not even just cross-cultural, just going to other places and trying to understand what's happening there has always been an interest of mine. So I am... Um, happened to teach the ministers of the United Arab Emirates at the Kennedy School, maybe in, I would say, 2002-ish or so, in an executive education program. 
and they invited me back to come to the UAE and um, uh, ask whether I could do some of could, could teach some of them, including the the Sheikh Mohammed, who um, is the ruler of Dubai, um, because he he. Uh, didn't come to Harvard. Um, so in any case, so I said at the time, I'd be happy to do that um, if I could do some research, if I could run some experiments. And that was kind of opened the whole kind of research stream of experimentation in uh, the Arab world, and particularly um, around kind of the Gulf. Uh, so starting with the Emirates, but then also going to Amman and um, Saudi Arabia um, and in and, and, and other countries, Kuwait, um, Jordan. Uh, so, so, so that's a bit of background. And what I was interested in studying was, in fact, the question of why people trust others. And that also was a bit motivated by that executive education program where, uh, in fact, I taught a class on negotiation and decision making or a few classes. And I uh, wanted to start with an icebreaker, kind of asking them to recall an instance or the most recent instance where they trusted somebody else and dead silence, nobody said a thing. Um, so the icebreaker didn't quite work, um, but it actually opened a super interesting discussion because then one of the ministers um, raised his hand and said, you know, it was an interesting question for them because trust really wasn't an issue for them. And then I asked him, what do you mean? Um, and he explained um, kind of the cultural context where you only trust people you know really well and connections and relationships are everything. And trust really isn't very risky because you try to decrease the risk involved in trust beforehand. Um, so in any case, it, in the end, it worked, it worked out. It, it, it worked as an icebreaker, but also it made me super interested in going there and better understanding. So in any case, so some of my um, most interesting just moments of running experiments were in other parts of the world where, you know, there were no labs and you just had to kind of make work, make it work with whatever you had at your disposal. In fact, in addition, um, uh, using some of your family members as research assistants. So my dad came with me to the United Arab Emirates and it, it's not, not, not a joke and served as my research assistant because I didn't have any. Uh, and of course it was very helpful also, going back to gender, in a world where um, women might not have such a public facing um, role um, as I had at the time. So it had lots of advantages, but in any case, so the experiments that we ran at the time, um, not just in the UAE, but in other, in the US as well, in Switzerland as well, other parts of the world, focused on one concept that um, another mentor of mine later on um, in my career, Richard Zeckhauser um, at the Kennedy School, uh, really wonderful mentor, um, very important, I think, for, for, for a lot of my thinking. And then I had come up with, um, and that, that, that was the question of betrayal aversion. So in economics, we had been uh, thinking about risk aversion or willingness to take risk more generally for a very long time, um, but we hadn't quite uh, disentangled willingness to take risk from willingness to trust. In fact, understanding that trust intrinsically is risky, somebody could betray your trust um, or somebody could honor your trust. Um, so therefore it was clearly a risky choice, but we argued that uh, uh, trusting or uh, thinking of um, risky choice in the social domain was quite different from uh, taking such a decision when you're confronted with nature or with chance. 
And so that was kind of the foundation of our coining the term trail aversion and of designing an experimental paradigm that allowed us to distinguish between willingness to take risk and willingness to take trust uh, and willingness to trust. And uh, basically the short summary of that is that we um, played the binary choice trust game that many of our listeners might be familiar with, where people um, have to decide whether to trust or not, and you play with a counterpart who then either uh, returns your trust or betrays you. And we didn't play kind of the standard version, but instead we asked our participants to indicate how likely it minimally would have to be for their counterparts to reward trust for them to be willing to trust. So that, so that was interesting for the trust game. It gave us a minimal acceptable probability, an MAP, as we called it, a number, a percentage point that they might say, you know, only if 80% um, of the world is trustworthy, I'm willing to trust, or only if the likelihood that trust is rewarded is 0.8, I'm willing to trust. Um, that allowed us then to compare that decision with decisions in a um, risky choice context that didn't, in fact, involve um, an active counterpart, but uh, just involved nature. So we then compared that those decisions with what we call the risky dictator game, where people also had to decide how high minimally the probability that um, the good outcome would result would have to be um, for, for, for them to make that choice. Um, but it didn't actually involve another person making a decision. Um, it was just then kind of uh, uh, nature or chance and deciding. And uh, yeah, so that betrayal aversion kind of became, um, I think, important for my thinking. And um, I also did those experiments in the UAE and found, for example, that people basically require 100% likelihood of trustworthiness for them to be willing to trust. So what the ministers had told me uh, in the executive program, in fact, proved to be um, right in that context, that also my experimental subjects uh, required very, very high thresholds um, of trustworthiness that we actually hadn't seen elsewhere in the world. And that then led to a whole stream of um, experiments that I won't go into detail now, but that focused then on interventions. I mean, the short summary is, you know, to, to promote trust, you can either decrease the cost of betrayal, and that's very much what, for example, is happening in the United States, um, where we have insurance schemes um, and where we also have um, ways in which contracts um, can be broken, but people can be compensated for their losses. Um, so people are very used to trying something out um, and then being compensated for the losses. So that's kind of decreasing the losses of betrayal. Um, and in contrast, you, uh, you, another um, scheme to increase the likelihood of trust is to decrease the likelihood of betrayal, right? So this is now not the cost of betrayal, but the likelihood that something bad will happen. And that's, of course, a very different regime, right? Now you're trying to think of, okay, how can I encourage people to in fact keep their promises. And that was much more what um, the UAE and other Arab countries that um, we engaged with kind of seemed um, to be doing in their legal regimes and their contract enforcement. Um, so in any case, so I became interested in Islamic law, became interested in, in really understanding um, kind of some of those cultural 
um, underpinnings um, and then experimenting in the lab and seeing what types of mechanisms would in fact encourage trust and which ones wouldn't. And um, not everything works in every context. So I want, why don't I stop here? I'm happy to talk about some of my gender experiments as well, um, but I've already talked for quite some time. So let me stop here for a moment. Thank you. This is fascinating. Uh, indeed, we, we, we'd like also to talk to you about uh, gender equality and, and the, the use of behavioral science to, to foster or promote gender equality in the workplace. Maybe the first question would be, could you tell us a bit more about what, why you decided to write uh, the book What Works, which is so important to uh, understand how behavioral science can help to promote gender equality? Uh, so I think, first of all, again, the book Notch was really important um, in my thinking in that that was one of the first books, maybe the first book that used behavioral science to fix problems. Um, and that was a bit of an eye opener where I was like, OK, I can do this um, for gender. And it took me a while, though, <laughs> to actually get around to doing it, uh, not so much because I wasn't ready, but I... Um, uh, actually served as academic dean uh, earlier on in my career as well, between uh, 2012 and 2014 for my first stint. And then, um, but only committed to three years because I told um, the dean at the time that I really, really need to write this book, that I felt like that was missing in the market, that nobody had done this before. And we now had enough good evidence, uh, either from the laboratory or from the field that allows us to make causal inferences to in fact advance uh, uh, the knowledge in the field. And the, the field really, um, when I started looking into what organizations were doing at the time and, and many still are doing, my first um, disappointment uh, really was that many organizations do the wrong things. So that was the first part of the book, trying to understand the evidence of what works and what doesn't work. And for example, I was discouraged to find that uh, at the time I couldn't find a single study suggesting that diversity training um, works, um, promotes diversity um, at all. And since the publication of my book in 2016, in fact, the number of additional meta-analyses have come out, um, again, finding that diversity training doesn't move the needle. Um, so I felt like, you know, your question, you know, why did I write the book? I think one was, uh, I felt like I had something to contribute that maybe very few other people um, could be contributing this intersection of gender and behavioral economics. But also, secondly, because I felt like the field really was uh, not paying attention to rigor and evidence the way maybe some other fields um, were paying attention. So it was really both. It was felt, it, yeah, it was that I think my field was ready to contribute, but also the practice uh, um, I thought might be interested in learning a bit more about what some experimentation and some evidence could add to what they're doing now. You mentioned that uh, gender, uh, sorry, that um, diversity training indeed didn't lead to the success maybe uh, it was hoped for. Are you now favorable to diversity training, even if it doesn't work so well? <laughs> Not so much, but it's a very good question because I realize that it often also um, serves a symbolic purpose. So 
I might be a little less negative than I was at the time, although I'm still very, I mean, you know, at heart, I'm an, um, I'm an economist and I'm a scientist. So you, you just have to be driven by the evidence and you have to be driven by good evidence, ideally um, exper uh, evidence that allows you to make causal inferences that is not exclusively experimental, but can, of course, be other methodologies um, as well. Um, so, so that evidence just tells us um, it's not really working. I have updated my beliefs a little bit um, for two reasons. Um, and the first one is not really, has nothing to do with um, science really. But now that I have worked with more organizations um, and am helping lead an organization as well, um, the, the Kennedy School, I, I, I am realizing that um, there's a lot of pressure also on organizational leaders to do diversity training and that uh, the people who feel this should be done by the organization are all very, you know, highly motivated and have the right values in mind. Um, and if the organization then turns them down, it feels like they don't care. Um, and that's something that I don't think I had appreciated when I wrote the book. I hadn't spent enough time um, with the practice to, to understand the kind of pressure that uh, chief uh, HR officers or chief diversity officers or even CEOs are under um, to do what feels right. Um, right, so that's a really interesting dilemma, I think, for a researcher to acknowledge that sometimes organizations have to do something just because of appearance. Um, um, and so, so now I'm, you know, that's why I'm now saying and. So yes, okay, and you do this, and what else do you do um, to really move the needle? So it's good to to do this because your constituency demands it, but more importantly, it would actually be to uh, move away from de-biasing mindsets and instead de-bias systems, de-bias your practice and procedures. So that was a first um, kind of revelation for me in the last four years. A second one uh, is research by a colleague of mine at the Kennedy School, Michaela Carlana, who didn't test diversity training per se, but did some really interesting work on, under, on better understanding the impact of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> people being um, aware of their results in an implicit association test. So she ran um, implicit association tests with teachers in Italy and the experimental manipulation was very simple. She either told the teachers about their results before they were grading um, some major exams or after. So that's the whole experiment. And so the question is, does being aware of the associations you made in this implicit association test, does this awareness uh, lead to a decrease in gender gaps or other gaps? The other gap that she was studying was a gap between Italians and immigrants. So she had found this before, that there's a grading gap between um, women, men and women with men getting higher um, grades and Italians versus immigrants of Italians getting higher grades. Um, and uh, it seemed promising. So her results suggest that it could have short-term positive impacts, at least for some people. And that was quite interesting in her work too, that the effect wasn't homogenous, but apparently it depends a bit on your previous disposition towards these groups. So that's towards women or towards immigrants. Um, and so if you generally uh, want to be, um, uh, you know, 
or if you generally care about gender equity and generally don't want to be sexist or racist, um, it had a big impact. If you cared less about equality, um, then it had um, no impact. So I think that that's my second um, revelation that I've, I'm now thinking maybe uh, we should do more research on at least short-term impacts. Uh, and I'm, I'm in fact working with organizations on that very question where um, some organizations now do something very similar where they do implicit association tests just before uh, performance appraisal rounds and then examine whether that changes anything in how managers uh, uh, evaluate their employees. Um, so I don't have the results yet, but again, that, that's kind of, you know, an immediate response to a very small intervention. And we don't know, and Mikhail, of course, doesn't claim that either. She doesn't know either. Nobody knows whether it has long-term impacts, but maybe uh, raising awareness could have these short-term beneficial impacts. You were talking about uh, interventions to, to move the needles, to, to promote um, diversity in organization. And in your book, you mentioned role models, norms, transparency. Uh, could you tell us more about the main learnings from your research, which can help um, heads of diversity and inclusion to promote gender equality? Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, lots of questions here, role models, norms, transparency, and they're all, they're all quite different. But let me start with role models. In fact, they have even more evidence now, um, including from economics, actually, just a recent NBR working paper um, whose authors, I'm afraid I'm forgetting, um, have studied the impact of role models, uh, again, in a very simple type of intervention. Uh, and that was just having exposure to female um, economics uh, professors. And that increased the likelihood that students would study economics. And that wasn't you know, a whole semester of having a female professor, but just an hour of exposure. So I, I do think um, the evidence is quite strong that role models matter, seeing is believing. The evidence I discuss in the book is um, also super interesting, comes from India, where India was one of the first countries um, to introduce quotas um, in politics and have um, reserved seats for women at the local level. And a number of researchers, uh, Rohini Pandey, Esther Duflo, and others, examined uh, the impact of the, the quotas uh, on lots of dependent variables, in fact. But the one that we are most concerned with when we think of role models, of course, is whether that, in fact, impacted um, the women in their communities. And um, the research suggests that it had a number um, of uh, impacts. One was that women were more likely to speak up in town hall meetings if they had a female um, leader or a pradhan um, or mayor um, in English. Uh, so, so, so that kind of seemed to matter. They also found that uh, parents were uh, indicated that one of their core career aspirations for their daughters was to become a politician. And it even um, changed some of the results on the implicit association tests 
in villages that had been exposed to at least two female leaders in the last now maybe 25 years. Um, the constitution was amended um, in 1993. So this is actually a long running natural experiment. And when I say natural experiment, I think the lucky part of the introduction of the quota was that in fact, it was done randomly with a third of the villages randomly picked out of a hat. So that then allowed this very interesting um, stream of research, not my own, but by other people, kind of examining the impact of um, kind of female leaders. Uh, and some of that is role modeling. So seeing is believing um, has been found in classroom contexts um, as well uh, um, as in the gender of your teacher. It's not, of course, it's, this is not just a women's issue at all. It also matters um, to boys to have male teachers, for example, in English. So what we want is counter stereotypical role models, right, who um, tell the counter-stereotypical individuals a showcase in many ways, the counter two counter-stereotypical individuals, that this is possible for people like them. And that's why male English teachers are important and female math or STEM or generally teachers are important. So yes, yeah, so role models, um, I think that evidence is quite strong. And I, um, I'm a big proponent um, of role models, whether that's in actual people or even in portraits on your walls. Uh, that again is researched by, by other people, but something I was quite struck by, that you can show that uh, girls and boys perform differently on tests, depending on what's on their walls and whether their walls um, affirm kind of their identity and increase their confidence, or disaffirm their identity and therefore decrease their confidence. Um, and that has had some, you know, real world implications. Um, a number of institutions, um, uh, thankfully also my um, home institution, Harvard, has in fact changed who is on our walls in the last um, 10 years and uh, is much more, the walls are, now our, our portraits are much more representative of the population than they were um, at the time. I mean, that's not just true for Harvard. I think the whole, that portrait project um, took off in other places, Oxford, for example, also um, followed suit and in many other places. Um, so I think that's a real, you know, lesson for, for any of our listeners uh, who have some power in, um, in, in how they frame the environment for people in their organizations, whether that's a company or a public sector agency or an NGO or school or any, you know, any other place. So that's on role models. Um, it, again, it was a big question because they're very different subjects, but let me maybe talk about norms also for a second and then maybe give, uh, give it back to you. Um, but norms certainly have been a core focus um, of behavioral economists for quite some time. And there's lots of research, um, not on gender, but on other topics showing that people tend to follow the herd. So they tend to kind of go with what the norm prescribes they should be doing. So some research that I found fascinating or still find fascinating is work on voter turnout by Todd Rogers, uh, another colleague of mine at the Kennedy School, who examined whether people are more or less likely to go and vote 
if they know that most other people are voting as well. And they found that, um, you know, in contrast to any rational theory of voting, where people should be more likely to vote if nobody else is voting, because that's when your vote, of course, can be decisive, that people, in fact, are more likely to vote when most other people are voting. And that has been replicated in many other places. So people are more likely to pay their taxes. If they think most everyone else is paying their taxes, they're less likely to litter. If other people are less likely to litter, contribute to public goods, more generally, if other people are believed to um, contribute to public goods, as some of um, Aaron Sphere's work on conditional cooperation, that you're more likely to cooperate when other people are, et cetera, et cetera. So I think norms is another example um, of where uh, economists have learned a lot from sociology and psychology and then have incorporated that very um, fruitfully into what we now know as behavioral economics. So for gender, of course, that's also important. It's important um, to know what the norms are, what we believe in, uh, whether we think that most people in our environment uh, want to advance gender equity or most people in our environment, um, in fact, uh, believe that men are superior to women. And that has become, I think, more relevant in uh, more recent discussions where we uh, moved a bit from exclusively focusing on formal procedures to informal um, environments. And we could also call, call this culture. And that's, of course, been, you know, uh, with us for, I don't know, for the last three, four years with um, Time's Up and other movements on um, sexual exploitation of women and uh, sexual harassment, where that question is a really important one. What is the prevailing norm in my organization? Um, is this the kind of organization that allows um, uh, sexual harassment or even you know, less severe uh, microaggressions such as interruptions or not being given credit for a comment, um, where research now suggests that bystanders are more likely to intervene in an environment where we think that the norm is not to tolerate those kinds of transgressions. Um, so yes, so norm um, norms are, are, are definitely important um, in our toolbox as behavioral designers uh, because human beings are just fundamentally social animals. Thank you for this. You mentioned uh, the work done on the physical environment, for example, at Harvard. Uh, as a dean of uh, Harvard Kennedy School, uh, how have you, how else have you applied the advice from Iris Bonnet, the researcher, uh, to promote gender <laughs> diversity within the university? <laughs> yes. So when I resumed my role as academic dean um, two years ago, the first thing that my team and I did um, was to take a very close look at our own hiring and promotion procedures. Um, that's faculty. So as academic dean, I am responsible for faculty HR, basically faculty hiring and promotion, other HR um, things. Um, and that was very interesting. I'm um, just to collect all the research on uh, for example, citation bias that uh, the research strongly suggests that women are less likely to be cited by other researchers. Women are less likely to self-cite themselves. Uh, we also have good evidence now from Heather Sarsons, who was a doctoral student at Harvard, uh, now as a faculty member um, uh, in Canada, about 
uh, co-authorship, something as many of our readers might be familiar with, that in economics and many other disciplines, not just econ, many papers now are not single authored but have more than one author, showing that female co-authors are given less credit um, for the paper than male co-authors. So, you know, research such as this one um, and, and others kind of informed our thinking on how in fact, to do our hiring. So one um, piece of evidence that was directly influenced by my own research, and in fact, now I can go back to your earlier question on experiments that I'm proud of um, uh, in terms of gender, um, is something that we do now uh, for our hiring procedures. So we're trying to bundle many more um, appointments than we did in the past. So uh, initially, or typically what we used to do was, let's say, to appoint economists, to review economists, appoint them in February, and maybe do something similar for sociologists sometime later in the year and for psychologists yet at some other time in the year. And research by Max Bazerman, who is a professor at the business school and a close friend, and Alexandra van Geen, who was a doctoral student at the time, and myself, um, in fact, was very directly responsible for that um, kind of thinking. We did some experimental um, research in the lab where we studied uh, the impact of joint evaluation. Joint evaluation um, says that um, a big insight in behavioral science has been that it's really hard for people to make absolute judgments about anything, meaning whether the coffee you drink is good or bad has something to do with the types of coffees you are used to. Or, you know, your tolerance for cold temperature has something to do with the types of temperatures you're used to, in addition, of course, to your own biology. Um, but anyway, so that was very important in our thinking and um, designing this experiment because we were nervous that when we focus on um, one candidate only, make kind of one decision at a time, um, that might lead people to rely on other comparisons um, that are available to them, um, speak stereotypes. So if I can't, you know, if I have to evaluate one candidate um, who is in front of me, uh, our minds will very likely rely on some way to calibrate that person. Um, and therefore, because we don't have other people to compare with, uh, we rely on stereotypes. And that's in fact what we showed in the experiment, that in, um, the separate evaluation conditions, people are much more likely to use stereotypical judgments um, rather than performance information uh, to evaluate uh, job candidates. Um, in contrast, when we do these joint evaluations where evaluators have at least two uh, candidates available to them, they're much more likely then to use objective performance information rather than stereotypes because they can compare those two candidates along um, those dimensions. Um, so that's um, an experiment that I'm proud of, um, but also an experiment that has in fact had uh, uh, very direct impacts on my work now um, as academic dean. So joint evaluation is important. Um, we're trying to do cluster searches um, for that very reason, where we um, uh, will hope that we can appoint more than one person, where we evaluate many more people comparatively. And that's actually been quite helpful. And this is not an empirical statement at all. Um, but you ask as my role as academic, my role as academic dean, um, uh, it, it looks like cluster surges help us get great candidates and diverse candidates. Um, so that's certainly something I recommend based on our research, but also based on my experience now um, at Harvard. 
Iris, um, you began to talk a little bit about talent management just now. Um, you know, what do you think is uh, fundamental from a behavioral science perspective when it comes to great hiring, but also when it comes to evaluation of employees? So, um, first of all, we have to focus on biases that could be hidden in our systems. And they can be as simple as the words that we use in our job advertisements. We now have tools available to help um, employers de-bias their job ads. And that's in fact been picked up by many, many, many employers because it just seems silly to exclude half of the population or some segment of the population from the talent pool just because you chose a language that was either uh, feminine stereotyped or masculine stereotyped. Um, so that's um, you know very, very simple insight, very low hanging fruit. It gets more complicated when we uh, have the candidates in fact in our organizations and start to evaluate them. Uh, so, you know, a very aggressive approach um, is one where we blind ourselves to the demographic characteristics of our job applicants. There are a number of um, startups uh, who have taken those behavioral insights and turned them into software, into technologies to allow organizations to do this more easily. One of them, for example, is called Applied. Um, applied as an applied science. Another one is Blendor. Um, there's a number um, of those um, out there that I'm quite excited about because they evaluate, they measure, they experiment, they try something out. And they what they do specifically is um, some of them just take off the names from resumes and some others even remove the resume completely from the evaluation procedure. And that's very directly built um, on uh, insights from behavioral science um, and psychology also. And that is that if you ask me what is the best predictor of future success in your organizations, it's neither the CV nor certainly not the unstructured interview, but in fact, it is something that you might want to call a job sample test. So, and that, you know, of course, doesn't sound like rocket science in that if you want to predict uh, success in a job, it might make sense to in fact have people applying for a coding job uh, to in fact write some code. And that is the norm for coding jobs, but that's why I'm kind of mentioning here, but people haven't thought that they could apply these same insights to other types of jobs. So for example, let me give one that I've um, recently used, which was for an executive assistant. Uh, that's certainly a job where people might think, well, I can, how can I possibly use a work sample test because the person will have so many different responsibilities and that's totally true. Um, but what I did myself was to, in fact, um, apply these lessons to my own hiring process of an executive assistant. So first of all, we uh, hid all the names um, um, and other identifiers on people's resumes and then evaluated those resumes. So every resume had a, got a code number and then was rated. Um, and then we put them in a drawer, basically. We had to do this by hand, um, in fact. So we didn't have the luxury of um, the technology at the time, but also I just wanted to experience it. So I didn't mind doing it by hand at all. And then secondly, we had all um, the candidates um, participate in a two-hour um, kind of online job sample test. And that included lots of different types of tests, but one of them, just to give you an example, 
included um, a scheduling task where I, I knew that that was really important um, for me in a uh, future executive assistant that the person would take this very seriously um, and um, would in fact go deeper and ask additional questions. In any case, so we did that and evaluated those um, job samples, put them in a drawer. And then finally, I in fact did interview um, the finalists and I used a structured interview. That's um, the last thing I want to say about a hiring process. So if you do think you want to, you need to interview somebody, kind of A, be aware that the interview is the home of bias. That's where we look for people who look like we do, who speak like we do, who went to the same school that we did, who might have the same nationality, same gender, same race. So that's really is the home of bias, of in-group bias. So be aware of that. But if you need to, if you feel like you absolutely need to see the people, then at least use a structured interview. And the structured interview is an interview where you design the questions beforehand and then you ask every candidate the same set of questions in the same order. And then going back to our early discussions about comparative or joint evaluations, then you evaluate their answers comparatively, as in, you know, every candidate's answer to question one, you look at all of those answers, you evaluate those, then you look at all answers to question two, to question three, etc. Yes, so that's, um, um, I, I, I thought I'd quickly share just how we did this ourselves because that was kind of one way to apply some core insights um, to our own hiring process. Great, thank you. Um, so in our, our last few minutes, we would love to get some of your thoughts on the current events that are happening right now in uh, July of 2020. Um, specifically, Iris, we would love to get your perspective on the impact of current events in relation to uh, these types of workplace issues. Um, first, given the shift to remote working due to COVID-19, what potential consequences do leaders and managers need to be aware of and proactively manage in this new context? It's a very good question. I don't know behavioral economics has a lot to contribute um, in answering that question, but I certainly expect that flexibility will increase in importance um, going forward, given the experiences that employers have made, uh, and employees, of course, not just employers, but um, I was just thinking about employers primarily here, but employees and employers have made. So from all accounts that I'm hearing, um, this works surprisingly well um, for people to work um, uh, flexibly, work from home, uh, work uh, during hours that aren't usual hours. Uh, so I absolutely expect that will play a more important um, part going forward. In terms of gender, of course, um, uh, I would be remiss in not mentioning that COVID and working from home has had differential impacts on men and women, um, you know, both positive and negative. So uh, certainly uh, it has become clear um, that women still carry most of the load at home. It's not something new. We've known this before from surveys, but it has become clear again that most of the care work is still being done by women. And so in particular, women with children um, have certainly paid um, a higher price than men, um, and in particular men with children. Um, You know, on the other hand, uh, as I said, it had kind of both these impacts, women in particular, um, although also men, but women in particular, have um, benefited from the flexible work 
um, something that women and increasingly the next generation of young men are demanding from employers. Um, so I think this is going to happen. Uh, I should also add there is some, so this was just, you know, me as a person responding. This wasn't me as an academic responding because I don't think we have the research to really understand uh, the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic and the new work arrangements on, on the future yet. But I can tell you um, something that has actually been quite um, behaviorally inspired. I wrote the book uh, in 2016. 15, 16 in Australia, in fact, on a sabbatical. And one of the companies that I came across at the time had introduced flexible work as a default. So very specifically building on behavioral insights, kind of saying flex work is the default and you basically have to justify why you cannot do the work from home, um, but have to be in the office. And that absolutely changed um, the culture in that company and also the diversity of that company. Great, thank you. So um, our second question related to current events, um, we're seeing in the private sector um, that, that many are taking a different forms of action in support of Black Lives Matter movement, from changing their brand names to committing to DEI training. But some critics view these actions as superficial, given the longstanding history of inequities in the workplace and perpetuation of toxic cultures. What advice do you have for leaders that want to drive real change from the inside out? So first of all, um, I should be very clear that work on gender has, of course, implications for race. And in our work, uh, intersectionality, meaning the interaction between gender and race, in fact, plays a very important role in particularly my recent work on performance appraisals. Um, but my research on gender cannot automatically speak to questions of race. So I think that's just important to mention that I don't consider myself a race expert. I consider myself a gender expert and, and at that, I'm a behavioral scientist. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, uh, a lot is happening right now and um, organizations try to respond in all kinds of different ways. So I absolutely believe that this is a moment. Um, I hope that the moment uh, will turn into a movement and not just be a moment that we will forget again in a couple of months. Um, and certainly the evidence there is quite strong that uh, the Women's March in Washington, in fact, for a long time was the biggest um, march uh, and now has been replaced by uh, Black Lives Matter protests. So Clearly, the numbers um, are strong and speak for themselves and suggest that this is, in fact, a movement and not a moment. Um, and employers have responded. So you ask me, you know, how credible or impactful do I believe those responses were? Um, I don't think I want to generalize. I don't think I can say, I, I, I know because I haven't evaluated it. Just generally speaking, given my work um, on gender, I would be more optimistic about impact the more systemic the changes. So I'm, again, the work on gender doesn't suggest that diversity training has in fact moved the needle on gender. Um, so that makes me um, somewhat less optimistic about diversity uh, training more generally. Um, and the work on gender, again, suggests that systemic changes, such as changing your hiring procedures, changing your promotion procedures, changing your performance appraisals, um, changing how you run meetings, uh, has had more impact on gender. So 
again, with the ca ca being very cautious about generalizations, but given what I know now, I would be more optimistic about systemic changes than these one-off um, actions. Great. Thank you, Iris. So um, we're just going to wrap up now, and we would love for you to let our viewers or, or, or our audience know about any exciting new projects that you have forthcoming and where people can contact you. Yes, I'm very happy um, for people uh, to contact me. I can be easily found by Googling. I have an unusual enough name, um, Iris uh, Bonnet, I-R-I-S-B-O-H-N-E-T. Um, so feel free to send me an email. Feel free to reach out to the Women in Public Policy program that I co-direct with Hannah Riley Bowles. We have a number of resources for listeners available. One is our Gender Action Portal. That's an online platform that summarizes research for practitioners and decision makers. It's research um, that focuses either on economic participation, um, political opportunity, health or education, and focuses primarily on experimental studies or other types of research that allows us to make causal inferences about what works. That's a bit of the what works equivalent of my book. Um, so feel free to Google uh, Gender Action Portal or GAP, otherwise known for other things, I know. But anyway, the acronym is uh, GAP, it's Gender Action Portal um, at the Harvard Kennedy School. And that's uh, searchable and available for anyone anywhere in, in the world. Um, and yes, please um, uh, keep up the good work, um, keep using rigor and evidence in your work, uh, advancing women and other underrepresented groups more generally. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Iris. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.